From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR's correspondents from around the globe. I'm Ted Clark. This week, a contender for Indian Prime Minister has a very controversial past. Entrepreneurs in Gaza plan IT startups despite daunting obstacles. And the International Herald Tribune gets a new, rather boring, name. There's a chance that by next year, India will be led by a man with a reputation for being polarizing. India's main opposition party, the BJP, has chosen Narendra Modi to lead it in next year's election. He just completed his 12th year as the elected chief minister of the state of Gujarat, where he oversaw economic growth and periods of deadly inter-ethnic violence. But as NPR's Julie McCarthy reports, many believe that Modi is the man who can lead the BJP to victory over the ruling Congress party. The western state of Gujarat on the Indian Ocean is the birthplace of Mahatma Gandhi. The Hindu ascetic known as the father of the nation preached harmony among India's many religions and wore a simple homespun cloth. Today, Gujarat's leading citizen, Chief Minister Narendra Modi, has a fondness for silk kurtas or tunics, designer glasses, and right-wing Hindu nationalism, which Modi portrays as harmless. India is a majority Hindu state, and Modi told Reuters, I'm patriotic, I'm a nationalist, I'm a Hindu. So you can say, yes, I'm a Hindu nationalist, because I'm a born Hindu, so nothing is wrong in it. At age eight, Modi joined the militant Hindu group known by its acronym RSS. The RSS promotes an assertive Hindu identity for India, rather than the tolerant Hinduism of Mahatma Gandhi. In 1948, an RSS follower assassinated Gandhi. Modi, the son of a tea vendor, rose to prominence as a pro-business go-getter for Gujarat. Gujarati pride. Gujarat ke prati garva. In speeches, Modi extols Gujarati pride and the willingness of citizens to pay high taxes for what he calls good governance. He says that's why his state has grown faster than the national average. In an industrial sector of Gujarat's capital, Ahmedabad, printing presses churned out forms and stationery on a recent Saturday. Owner Pankaj Goravat looked all over India before setting up his business in Gujarat. He says taxes here are high, but the supply of state electricity is uninterrupted, something unheard of in most other states. There's a whole lot of difference in what you see here and other places. Getting a water connection, getting electrical connection, getting licenses, you have systems in place. When Modi lured Tata, India's second biggest car maker to Gujarat, journalist Vinod Jos says the deal was not only lucrative for the car company. There's a huge tax incentive which Tata was given. He says Modi also got the opportunity to tell big business. Come to me, I'll protect you. I'm your man. Gujarat's entrepreneurial tradition long predates Modi. But businessman Amit Bantia says Modi made the government machinery accountable and won over key industrialists. After Modi took charge, he started acting like a CEO. And people thought that this person means business. 
Modi's PR machine promotes Gujarat as India's top performer. But Indira Hirway, professor of economics at the Center for Development Alternatives in Ahmedabad, says nearly half of all children under five in Gujarat suffer malnutrition, and two-thirds of rural households lack toilets. Hirway says the Gujarat model is not very different from the rest of India. But here, the ambitions of the government, they have gone overboard when you want to be the fastest growing state. Neglecting social needs, says Hirway. Modi adopts an autocratic style. He thinks he knows everything. Dissent is something which he cannot tolerate. He feels quite threatened, insecure, if somebody criticizes him. No single event elicits more condemnation of Modi than the Hindu-Muslim violence of 2002 in Gujarat, just after he became chief minister. A deadly fire on a train carrying Hindu pilgrims was blamed on Muslims. It ignited a wave of reprisal that killed more than a thousand people, mostly Muslims. Modi was accused of standing by as mobs of militant Hindus rampaged, a charge he vigorously denies. Here, in the burned-out remains of the Muslim enclave of Gulberg in Ahmedabad, a Hindu mob took revenge on February 28, 2002. Sixty-nine Muslims were killed at this place, including Muslim leader Essen Joffrey, whose case is still before the courts. The Muslim notable was hacked to death outside his gutted home, where I'm now standing. The area is now overgrown and deserted, as if forgotten. But the memories of this place are not forgotten. Rupa Modi, no relation to the chief minister, took refuge in Joffrey's home along with 60 others. Rupa chokes back tears, recalling how the house was torched. Her young son was frightened and worried about her safety. Making their escape, Rupa fell to the ground, her son's hand slipping from hers. She would never see her son again. In 2009, senior police officer Sanjeev Butt told a special investigating team of the Supreme Court that the night before the killing spree, Modi told the assembled senior police to, quote, let the Hindus vent their anger. He says that the policy of taking even-handed action won't work this time. You will have to allow the Hindus to vent out their anger. There is so much of anger, and that anger would have consumed him had it not been directed somewhere else. So that was a very conscious political decision. No other official has corroborated Butt's statement, and the inquiry found no credible evidence to implicate Modi, who was cleared. The United States, however, was not as forgiving, consistently denying Modi a visa. Nirmala Sitharaman, a spokeswoman for Modi's BJP party, shrugs off U.S. disapproval. You've already seen leaders coming in dealing with him who earlier hesitated to even talk to him. And in any case, Narendra Modi has not applied for a U.S. visa. And therefore, I can't see why this debate is being kept alive. India's Central Bureau of Investigation, meanwhile, continues to probe police killings of people who were allegedly plotting to assassinate Modi. Projecting himself as a unifier, Modi told a recent rally in Delhi that when it comes to governing, there is only one religion, nation first, India first. Survivors of the carnage of 2002 are unconvinced.
Rupa Modi points to the Hindu-Muslim rioting last month that swept through a village in the state of Uttar Pradesh. If all of this happened in Gujarat and it's still happening in other places, imagine, she says, what will happen if Modi becomes prime minister. In highlighting economic development, Narendra Modi has changed the conversation in India. But his ability to lead such a religiously diverse country remains hotly debated. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. Building an IT startup in the Gaza Strip isn't easy. Electricity is sporadic, there's no 3G network, and even if you can sell your product outside Gaza's tightly controlled borders, it can be hard to move the profits back into Gaza. Nonetheless, half a dozen Gazan entrepreneurs recently pitched their ideas for consideration in a unique program, one that could catapult their businesses into the global marketplace. NPR's Emily Harris reports. Lena Shamia is a soccer fan. Real Madrid is her favorite team, and she and friends gather at a cafe or apartment in Gaza City to watch televised games whenever they can. She noticed that a lot of people in Gaza do the same. After the end of the game, they have a social talk discussing the game itself and analyzing it and sharing their opinions of, of it. So we, fo- we thought about translating this idea into an online world. Specifically, an online social network centered around sport. Lena co-founded Datrius, a Gaza startup that just won $14,000 in seed funding from Oasis 500, a Jordanian firm. Salwa Khadhuda is Oasis's investment manager. There are several sports networks, but this specific company has uh, certain unique selling points, uh, like the Arabic interface, like allowing like crowdsourcing, which is something that uh, these networks don't have. Another just-funded Gaza startup is developing an app to help people who are colorblind choose clothes. Color Vision takes a picture of what you want to wear, then tells you the colors using text or music. Every color has a, a tune of a piano. So when red doll. Manal Sleem came up with this idea thanks to a friend who's colorblind and uses a standalone device to help her distinguish between colors. But this device is very expensive. It's from uh, Germany. Yeah. But I get the, the same solution by $1.99. And even though it's hard for Manal herself to travel outside of the Gaza Strip, her app could be sold anywhere. 164 Gazan entrepreneurs applied for a chance to pitch their ideas to the Jordanian investment firm. Seven got a shot. Three, so far, have been chosen for funding. Salwa Khadhuda of Oasis 500 says she's looking forward to working with these groups from Gaza. They are hungry to start their own business. They are ready to work really hard. They are ready to to beat the odds, and they have that culture embedded in them. In addition to the $14,000, each startup will participate in several months of intensive training, then have a chance to pitch other investors for a lot more money. This business accelerator is a partnership with the humanitarian aid organization Mercy Corps. John Ross directs Mercy Corps' digital economy program. He wants to build a blueprint from this experience in Gaza. A model that can be replicated in other countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa. We're looking at Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, West Bank, and Gaza. Young IT entrepreneurs in Gaza hope this recent chance to pitch outside investors won't be their last. Emily Harris, NPR News.
Coming up, Germans choose rest homes in Poland. Thieves snatch jewelry from Europe's finest shops. And nostalgia spreads around the world as the International Herald Tribune loses its name. A recent UN study gave Germany a high rating for the quality of life enjoyed by its senior citizens. Even so, many Germans spend their final days in Eastern European countries, where elder care is less expensive. That practice has some people asking whether it's wrong to send loved ones so far away just to save money. NPR's Berlin correspondent Soraya Sarhadi Nelson filed this report from Poland. A handful of German and Polish residents at this nursing home in the mountain town of Slarska Poreba play a Scrabble-like game using blocks with large letters. The seniors are tended to by Polish workers who offer a steady supply of smiles, hugs, and encouragement. Leonardo Tegles says such personal attention makes this nursing home called Sunhouse special. The 87-year-old Dutch-born immigrant to Germany says he first learned about the Polish nursing home from a TV ad. He says he had become too frail to live on his own, but his German stepdaughter didn't have enough room to take him in. So Teglis moved 500 miles from München-Gladbach across the border to Sunhouse, where he pays a third of what he would spend in Germany. In the world, he says he's disappointed more of the staff here doesn't speak German, but he loves his private room with windows overlooking the vibrant fall foliage, even if it is too far away for his family and friends to visit. Teglis is one of 10 German seniors at Sun House, a number that is expected to double in the coming months. Helping Germans find elder care in Poland is Gunther Stobrawe. He and his Polish-born wife have advised more than 100 families since opening their business in April. Stobrawe takes a call from a German senior interested in moving to Sun House, which used to be a German hospital during World War I. He tells NPR it's not just the two-thirds lower cost, but better care that draws Germans to Poland. Most are seeking an alternative to expensive and impersonal treatment in Germany. There are not enough nurses to provide adequate care to the elderly. That shortage is expected to increase as Germany's population ages. By 2050, almost a third of Germans will be 65 years or older. Better care is why one German woman NPR interviewed says she pulled her mother out of a nursing home down the street and moved her to a Polish one 350 miles away. The German government cut off the 94-year-old woman's pension for leaving the country. Her daughter, who asked that she and her mom not be identified, said she is planning to tell officials her mother has moved back to Germany to restore the monthly payments. But she says no matter what, she won't bring her back to a German nursing home. She says at the last one, workers fed her mother a steady dose of sedatives that kept her asleep most of the time. The daughter adds that's not the case in Poland, where her mother is happy and more active. Sunhouse's director is Helena Grab. Our treatment isn't different from what is offered in Germany, but what German relatives of the patients tell us is that it's much more warm-hearted. We treat them in a friendly and hands-on manner. We knock on the door before we go into their rooms. This approach appeals to our patients' loved ones. 
but many other Germans are uncomfortable with the exodus of their senior citizens. A March survey by pollster TNS Emnid found that more than four of every five Germans rejected the notion of their elderly spending their final years in Poland or nearby Slovakia, another country where seniors are moving to. The influential German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung sarcastically called the trend gerontologic colonialism and featured a cartoon of older Germans rolling eastward on walkers, in wheelchairs, and in hospital beds. By Klaus Pavletko, who heads a Berlin-based association called Friends of the Elderly, blames the transplant of German seniors into cheaper facilities abroad on relatives seeking to protect their inheritance. He says sending older Germans to a foreign country makes them feel cast off. Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson, NPR News and Slarska Poreba, Poland. A crime spree has broken out in Europe. Earlier this month, in central Paris, thieves, using axes and smoke grenades, broke into a Swiss luxury watch store and made off with nearly $2 million of loot. It's been a particularly good year for jewel thieves all across Europe. Tens of millions of dollars in diamonds and other precious gems have been stolen. Here's NPR's Jackie Northam. By European standards, this latest jewel heist in Paris is pretty small potatoes. Compare it to the $100 million worth of rings and necklaces that were snatched from Harry Winston, a premier Paris jeweler, in 2008, or the $50 million worth of gems stolen from a plane waiting on the tarmac in Brussels earlier this year. And there's the whole string of high-profile jewel thefts in southern France this spring, including one at a hotel in Cannes, where a lone thief made off with $136 million in diamonds. Scott Andrew Selby, author of the book Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History, explains what happened. A thief came in that morning, went quickly through some doors that were supposed to be locked, pulled out a gun, and managed to get away with a fortune in diamond jewelry, and just hopped right back out onto the main promenade and disappeared into the crowd. The robbery took place at Cannes' luxury Carlton Intercontinental Hotel, the same one featured in the Alfred Hitchcock classic, To Catch a Thief. John Shaw is a managing director with SW Associates, a Paris-based loss adjuster and risk manager working on this theft. He says jewel heists are a boom industry in Europe. I think what we're seeing on a worldwide basis is the opposite of a treasure hunt. Wherever the very wealthy go, there are people running after them with trays of jewellery. Spectacular jewel thefts are often romanticized in movies. Take To Catch a Thief. In it, Cary Grant plays John Roby, a dashing former cat burglar pursued by a beautiful socialite played by Grace Kelly. Who did you call me? Roby. John Roby, one of the world's cleverest jewel thieves known as the cat. I read all about you in the Paris paper. You may have read about somebody called the cat, but... Scott Selby says nowadays, jewel heists tend to be carried out by organized networks. Selby says one international gang is the Pink Panthers, a syndicate of professional thieves that come out of the former Yugoslavia. Subtlety is not their specialty. Driving cars through storefront windows, smashing and grabbing, guns drawn. Selby says another network is called the School of Turin. Thieves that come together for individual low-key heists developed over long periods. They tend to have um, day jobs that give them skills that are useful as well as providing them cover in the community. So, for instance, um, one guy has an alarm company, one guy has a locksmith company. 
John Kennedy, the president of the New York-based Jeweler Security Alliance, a nonprofit organization that compiles data on crimes against the jewel industry, says jewel heists in the U.S. are much smaller than those seen in Europe. A couple million dollars in stolen gems here would be considered a very, very big hit. He says there has been a dramatic decline in jewel thefts in the U.S. since the late 90s. Still, Kennedy says there are a lot of hot gems on the market here. There's a huge international diamond trade that's constantly going all over the place, back and forth and, and all over. Many of the diamonds that have been stolen in Europe uh, and even in the Far East have shown up in New York. Kennedy says stolen diamonds can be recut, identifying marks can be removed, and the gems can be resold by questionable jewelers. He says since the first of the year, thieves in the U.S. seem to be bypassing diamonds altogether and are going after high-end watches worth upwards of $100,000 each. Jackie Northam, NPR News. The International Herald Tribune is about to change its name. In these difficult days for print journalism, fans of the Paris-based English-language newspaper are grateful that it's still being published. But the change is prompting a good bit of nostalgia. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley in Paris explains why. The sliding glass doors at the International Herald Tribune's Paris office are already emblazoned with the newspaper's new title, the International New York Times. Europe editor Richard Stevenson explains why the 126-year-old paper is changing its name. Frankly, because we believe that the future is digital and we need to have a single digital brand name. And right now, having an International Herald Tribune name on our print newspaper is a little bit confusing and kind of dilutes the impact of the New York Times name around the world. Stevenson says with the New York Times name, the paper hopes to pick up paying subscribers outside the U.S. for its website. But longtime readers of what is fondly referred to as the TRIB or the IHT can't help but feel nostalgic. Writer Ward Just says he's been coming to France for 30 years and the paper was always a welcoming friend. You know, the look of it, the uh, different op-ed stuff, much of you know, a European slant to the paper, because after all, there it sits in Paris. It's a little bit like the death of an old friend, you know. The International Herald Tribune was founded in 1887 as the European edition of the New York Herald. The paper's readers have included turn-of-the-century elites living in Paris, World War I doughboys, jazz-age American expats, and well-educated travelers. Today, the Trib is printed at 38 sites around the world and sold in more than 135 countries. Charles Truhart was Paris correspondent for the Washington Post in the 1990s during the three decades when the Post and the New York Times jointly owned the Herald Tribune. Today, Truhart is director of the American Library in Paris. Certainly the Herald Tribune of the 1950s, the classic Herald Tribune of memory and nostalgia and myth, was really a a local newspaper that saw the whole world through the eyes of the expatriate village that was Paris. Trueheart points to the late Herald Tribune humorist Art Buckwald. If you go back and read the columns he was writing in the 50s in his youth, in the heyday, it's as though all the readers are right here in Paris. Here's an old recording of Buckwald reading from his classic column, The Six-Minute Louvre. As you know, there are only three things worth seeing in the Louvre Museum. That's the Winged Victory, the Venus de Milo, and the Mona Lisa. And the rest of the stuff is all junk. (laughs) A staple at every Paris news kiosk, the Herald Tribune has even worked its way into French popular culture. New York Herald Tribune! Stop on. 
Jean-Luc Godard's 1960 classic A Bout de Souffle, or Breathless, features a fresh-faced Gene Seberg hawking the paper on the Champs-Élysées. Walter Wells was the executive editor just after the New York Times bought out the Post to become the sole owner of the Herald Tribune in 2003. We rebuilt the paper and we added space that had been taken out and we added staff that had been cut. We uh, had color printing all around the world and all kinds of things. It was a very, very exciting time. But in the digital age, the Herald Tribune struggled. Wells says he's surprised it took the Times this long to rename the paper, American Library Director Charles Truhart says sentimentality aside, he's grateful the Times still chooses to publish an international edition at all. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Ted Clark.